Welcome to the Vertical Software Podcast. I'm your host, Sudan Siva, the head of corporate development of Vogue Software Group, where we buy and hold vertical market software companies across the world. In this podcast, we'll introduce you to owners and operators who run a vertical software business, talk about their story, how they view the market, and the trends that they see. Stay tuned for our next guest on the Vertical Software Podcast. Hey everyone, I'd like to welcome our next guest, David Wadler. He is the founder and CEO of Vendorful. He previously started and sold Twisted to Lexmark and is also an active angel investor. So very accomplished in both the investing as well as the operating space and excited to have him on. So welcome to the show, Dave. Hey, thanks Why don't you so start much. off by giving a quick introduction on your story? And yeah, sure. So uh, I will say it's still bizarre for me to hear myself described as accomplished. Uh, it was a circuitous route for me. I thought I had peaked at 22. When I was 29, I was literally fetching coffee for people and picking up their dry cleaning, making very little money and uh, was super frustrated. So I remember my mom called me once and she's like, you'll be okay. You know, Larry David, I think was like hanging out, sitting on stoops when he was 40. I was like, oh, great. I had 10 more years of this hell. Yeah. So since then, I figured it out what I'm, what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, I like to build stuff. Uh, in particular, I like to build technology. So doing startup number two, which is, which is Vendorful. We have a product that helps organizations with strategic sourcing and managing their vendor supplier uh, data, performance data, et cetera. And as you mentioned, also do uh, a bunch of angel investing and, and advising uh, for other startups. Awesome. And, and going into the earlier part of your background, I mean, you have an interesting combination of experience. Like looking at your LinkedIn and your story, you know, it seems like you've done a bit of recruiting, a bit of development. Before starting Twistage in 2004, how did all these different things help you grow as an entrepreneur? Or did you have some sort of formative experience during your early age that, you know, kind of focused you or, or told you to go towards building? And, and, you know, what are some of the skills that kind of carried over from there? Sure. Yeah. And thank God I didn't put everything on my LinkedIn. People would be confused when they see the personal training and the, having a literary agent working on a book. Uh, so I, I just scratched the surface of, you know, people's heads don't explode. I, I think probably the formative experience for me was I got this you know, very important internship when I was 19 after my, uh, my freshman year of college. My parents were super excited. It was in, you know, at a technology company. And it was kind of a bait and switch. You know, I was supposed to like learn how to program and you know, get involved in software development. And I, I ended up like swapping out graphics cards and replacing people's mice. And I wasn't learning anything. I certainly wasn't making very much money. I took the job for the experience, the brand equity, but it was terrible. And I was commuting an hour each way. I had struggles with insomnia. So I was always like that close to falling asleep on the road. And I, I told my parents, I said, I'm, I'm gonna leave this job. Can't, I can't do it. This internship is awful. I'm like, no, you can't leave. This is so prestigious. And I said, well, you know, I'm going to leave when I die and kill four other people falling asleep on the highway. So I'm leaving. I'm, I'm done. And they said, listen, you know the, the deal here. Um, you're responsible for all of your own expenses at college. So you don't make money this summer. Like, <laughs> no phone calls, you know, no fun. And I said, I'm fully aware of that. So I came home a week later and I said, I got a job selling cutlery. It's like, you're selling cutlery. I said, yeah, 
what I'm doing. I'm gonna go door to door, I'm gonna sell knives, mom. And she said, oh God, how do you get involved with this? And I said, well, I told her how I got involved. And then I told her, and I spent $170 so I can have like the showcase uh, knife set that I can then demo for people. And she goes, don't you realize this is how they make all their money? They get suckers who are college students and they, they charge them $170 for knives. I'm like, that, that, that's not a scalable business, mom. So uh, I went out in the first few, I was terrible. Then I got a sale. And then I got another sale, another sale, another sale, another sale. And by the time I was done, I was seventh in the whole Northeast. And the reason I wasn't first is I was enjoying my summer break and working 10 to 12 hours a week instead of 30 to 40. Uh, but I was making 52 bucks an hour. And I realized, oh my God, I can sell. I then spent basically the next 10 to 12 years of my life trying like hell not to be selling anything. <laughs> so I was, I was writing software, I was you know, personal training, I was uh, working on books, articles or whatever. And I just, I thought about it, I'm like, I enjoy it. I, I don't view it as selling, I view it as I'm, I'm helping people solve a problem. Once I decided that like, I'm okay, that that's part of me, uh, it really helped, uh, it helped me sort of pursue entrepreneurship. Got it. And, and going past, you know, kind of that foundation of being a really good salesperson, how do you go from that to building products? Because that to me is still a very different skill. Obviously, sales is a huge part of it. But sure. how did you think about building and kind of developing your skills around that? In 1994, I'm going to date myself. I, I had this idea that it would be awesome to put resumes and job hunting online. And I got the domain jobhunt.com. I didn't know how to write a line of code. So that ended up going nowhere. And I, but I ended up taking a bunch of computer science and I learned how to, how to write code and um, did that you know, on and off uh, professionally and non-professionally for a few years. I don't know, there was a horrible tsunami uh, in like 2004 uh, that you know, destroyed I think, parts of Sri Lanka and Thailand, et cetera. And I remember reading an article uh, about the cost of people who had put like postage sized videos on their website. So I had this idea that video was going to be a big thing. I always like making stuff, right? And I like making software. But I never really was super interested at the time or didn't think I was so interested in solving a big problem. And so the earlier version of Twistage uh, was basically a bandwidth optimizing YouTube. So we had a, a site called Vlogville. If anybody goes to archive.org and they look up vlogville.com, you'll see something that could have turned into YouTube if I hadn't gotten laughed out of every VC meeting I went to. Uh, not good at selling to VCs, good <laughs> at selling to customers. This idea that if, if you see a problem out there, that you can build a product to solve that problem, became really, really appealing to the other part of my personality, right? So I have a friend who called me Bob the Builder, uh, other people look at me as a salesperson. It's probably one of the reasons that corporate America didn't work out for me is that I am not a this or a that. I'm okay at a bunch of different things. But I, you know, they're definitely better salespeople and they're definitely better developers. But there are not that many people who can write code and sell. I, I, I really, I really enjoy doing product. And for me, it's an extension of sales. As I told you, selling isn't my tricking you to buy something. 
Selling is solving a problem that you have, right? So the first part of selling is identifying the problem and building a solution that addresses that problem. So for me, it's all part of the same continuum. Got it. You were fortunate enough to go from starting Twisted, building it, and then selling it to Lexmark. And to your point about corporate America, you actually worked a couple of years post-acquisition as well at a larger company. What was that entire experience like in terms of going through the sales process, obviously getting the reward of an exit, but then also staying along with the business and seeing how it gets integrated? What did you like and perhaps what didn't you enjoy? I think fortunate is an important word for the listeners because as hard as you work, as smart as you might be, as connected as you are, there's always going to be elements of good fortune. Uh, that could be timing, relationships, any, anything. Um, you can maximize your, your opportunity, but if you don't have good fortune, it's very difficult to be successful. So yeah, we, we were acquired. Um, it was a sort of transformational experience, not just for me financially, but in the way that I was viewed, right? I was some idiot startup person who had been an idiot, lots of other thing person. And overnight, all of a sudden, people want my advice, my opinion, or whatever. Granted, I hadn't learned anything overnight, right? From day one to day two, besides my bank account changed, but nothing in my head had changed overnight. Working for, for a big company, again, was, was really illuminating. And I think, you know, we went in with all sorts of enthusiasm about what, what this is going to mean for our business, how we were going to have basically have instant scale. Uh, Lexmark, uh, was in the process of deal, reconciling the fact that printing is a business that is slowly eroding. Right? More and more stuff is living in the cloud digitally. Uh, less of it is coming out of a printer. And so we were one of, I think it ultimately ended up being 14 or 15 or 16 uh, software companies that they bought. We were the only cloud-based SaaS company that they bought. So it was very, very difficult for me to set my people <laughs> who came with me in the, in the acquisition up for success and also to set Lexmark up for success. You know, I had very high level access, talk to the CEO, talk to the CFO, et cetera. But you know, even things that you would think of as, as fairly transactional and simple, like compensation, that, that, that they're simple to do, but you don't have to come up with something novel out of you know, whole cloth. There are compensation plans for selling SaaS software. The compensation plan for selling SaaS at Lexmark was actually punitive to the salespeople. And if you not only remove the incentive, but you undermine or, or, or make selling SaaS an inferior option versus selling a perpetual license, what do you think they're, they're gonna do? And so they had a suite of products, right, that they can sell and Twisted was just one of them. But I had a guy call me up and he's like, look, if I do this deal um, because of the way that this is set up, I'm gonna make $750,000. So the only way this deal makes sense for me is I'm gonna turn it into a seven year contract. I'm like, what? And the SaaS contracts are moving towards month to month. I said, you know, annual agreements are typically fine. Let's, let's see if we can get them for a year. Maybe they'll renew for three because I don't get paid on any of that. So he goes, so, and this was a giant Fortune 100 company that we were, you know, 
in conversations with. It's like, it just doesn't make sense. So of course he pitched the seven year contract. Of course the person from the company with whom I had been dealing, uh, because I had to pass this along to, to the, the Lexmark rep we got acquired, called me up and said, are you guys out of your mind? And it was, it was very difficult. So, you know, turning a big ship around uh, is challenging. I think also as ambitious and sort of correct the, the vision was, you have to make sure you're at a place that sort of lines up where all the sets of goals line up and your ability to execute on those goals line up. So it was a, it was a fascinating, I got to go to, you know, a board meeting of a public company and present to the board. Uh, I had, you know, executive access and, and be in, you know, discussions about huge deals that would be meaningful and material for a company that's generating billions of dollars in revenue. It was, it was awesome in that regard. But also frustrating because one of the things I liked about being in charge, there's very little I like about being in charge. I'm not in charge. I work for my employees. I work for my investors. I work for my customers. But when I screw something up, I have agency. I can fix it. When somebody else screws something up, right, and I'm not empowered to do anything about it, I just have to deal with the results. And I don't do well that way. Totally. And it's interesting. I think you touched on a lot of different points. So I think we can do an entire, entirely different podcast on sales incentives and compensation structures alone. I think incredibly complex, especially when you have, when, when you need to sell two very different products, very different characteristics to enterprise customers. I think you just end up in a situation where your bread and butter, your core product gets focused, gets, you know, 90% of the focus. And very hard to sell an add-on, especially when the market's going one way, yet compensation structures remain relatively stagnant. And, and I think the other pieces around the agency problem that you talked about, I think, you know, large companies naturally, as they grow to no fault of any individual, in my opinion, you, you tend to see the challenges around decision-making and the number of layers you have to go through. Yeah and just, you know, complexity. And, you know, in the technology space in particular, I think that's very hard to deal with because you have to move fast. I think speed is almost everything, whether it's sales or building product or anything else, even hiring. And anytime anytime you're slower than the competition, uh, it it really sets you back. And, you know, that's one thing that, you know, I've seen at at Constellation, we've been able to alleviate that just through a decentralized structure. But you know, just from my prior experience, I can definitely speak to the complexities of working in a large organization and how slow it can move for no reason apart from just sheer size of the organization. And Constellation is also a public company. That was also a big, big shift for me. Um, it's not something that you know when you're going through the acquisition process that you think about. But, you know, as I, you know, I'm talking about, you know, because the CFO, you know, was, was interested in, in changing to a more subscription model. In fact, Lexmark uh, had done very well with what they call MPS, managed print services, and moving away from a transactional model where they just, you know, pay, sell the printer, make money on the cartridges. It was a much more holistic thing. But taking all of the software pieces they, they had acquired, which were tied to perpetual licenses, if you're going to go out to Wall Street, because right, you have quarterly earnings, and that's that was 
very interesting. It makes it very hard for a lot of these businesses to think strategically when they have to operate tactically quarter to quarter. They say, look, we have shifted our model. We are going to see a massive reduction in revenue this quarter because of the way we recognize revenue because we're moving to a subscription model. This will all work itself out over the course of the next four to eight quarters. And things are going to be great, but on paper, it's not going to look right. And it's an accounting problem as much as anything else. But if you don't have the, the courage to go out there and, and lead with that and tell a story, you can't do it. You know, you look at, uh, at, at Amazon, Jeff Bezos, I mean, the underrated thing is great storyteller. This, this is somebody who went out for years and told people, we don't need to make money now. And everybody bought in. And guess what? He was right. You know, you look at a company like Lexmark, people are just concerned, what are the numbers you put up? Did you hit your number? Did you, did you go below your number? How does that align with analyst estimates? And, and that's dictate your stock price. Yeah, completely agree. I, I think um, having that long-term view is something that is very rare amongst public companies. But, you know, if you are able to be under leadership, or identify a leadership team that has that long-term view, uh, it, it can be incredibly powerful. And I think, you know, Constellation, Amazon, uh, even hopefully Tesla, uh, you know, hope, like, are able to kind of showcase what that can do. Yeah. Uh, switching gears a bit, I mean, let's talk more about Vendorful. Tell us sure. more about, you know, how did you get involved in solving the problems around strategic sourcing and procurement? These are normally not things that you know, you just wake up and think about normally things that you know you probably don't see on a day-to-day -day basis. So, how did you get involved in that, and, and tell us how the company has progressed since? So, I got involved with Lexmark day one of the acquisition. I was asked to review some contracts, and uh, you know, for one particular vendor, for one particular um, service offering, we were spending about seven x uh, market. And I said, "Oh my God, how did this happen?" So I got asked to be involved in some other, well, to help clean that up and then to get involved in some of the other uh, IT sourcing. And I, I noticed a bunch of very interesting trends. So trend number one was despite the fact that, you know, you have tooling with ERP systems and e-procurement systems, the level of complexity of these tools is so high. Few people can use them. The business models are oftentimes, you know, fairly antiquated. Um, so it becomes prohibitively expensive to add more users, to get stakeholders, et cetera. You end up doing things in Excel, Word, and email. And so you know, we often joke our, our number one competitor is the Microsoft Office suite. So it's not that, that these companies haven't necessarily invested in these tools. It's that they're not getting the right kinds of return on that investment. That's number one. And then the other thing that we thought was really, really interesting is the information asymmetry between buyer and seller. So let's look at a company that's, you know, pretty sophisticated with its, its procurement and strategic sourcing, and they have an IT category manager. Maybe they have a team of IT category managers. This company, they know how to buy IT. So you have this person, and he or she is responsible for, for buying IT, and then you have the vendor. Let's just, I'll pick a category uh, managed DNS. I was just uh, I have a friend in the space. So several friends in the space. So the managed DNS provider, that person needs to know one product, managed DNS. The salesperson has all these sales tools, 
you know, at his or her disposal, has all this research, all this data, and then also all the information about managed DNS, right, rattling around the brain. The IT category manager, that person needs to buy managed DNS. That person also needs to buy routers, switches, virtualization software, ERP, HR software, marketing automation software, laptops, everything. So the IT specialist is at heart a generalist. The salesperson is a specialist. So you have an information asymmetry. So what I found is in large part because of the lack of tooling, stakeholder engagement, which is critical, just doesn't happen or it happens in a really, really messed up way. I would use a, a different word other than messed up, except we have a PG audience here. And so what you're really doing is you're always at this, at this competitive disadvantage. And, and, you know, the word is, you know, competitive is probably the right word. You know, even though you, we will often call our vendors our partners, what have you, when you're in the process of negotiating the contract, right, somebody is going to probably win or lose. So you, you have this, this ongoing problem where the buyer is always less equipped than the seller in terms of tooling and information and support. So we looked at this and we said, all right, this, this is a big, big problem. It affects all companies of all sizes. Let's see if we can fix it. You know, that's really how I got involved. You know, I, I knew very little about procurement, very little about supply chain. Um, I still know way less than, than most of our customers. Um, which is fine. Uh, you know, I'm learning as I go, quick study. It also means that we have to build a product in a very specific way. And, the, and that way is something we call customer-driven development. So we have a bunch of notions about how things should and could work. But what we really need to do is be listeners. And I talk a lot, so I know it's weird to think of me as a listener. We have to ask them, where does it hurt, right? And once we know what, where it hurts, then we can come up with a lot of different ideas about how to fix it. And that doesn't mean we get it right the first time, but we iterate. And so when we started, we were a one-trick pony. We helped organizations run IT RFPs. Now we are a pony with many, many tricks. In fact, we're a barn full of animals uh, for strategic sourcing, running RFX in any different category, direct, indirect. We've had people buy mattresses on our platform. We've had buy them, have them engage with agencies of record. We do reverse auctions. We help uh, our, our users um, identify and understand how their individual people in their department are performing against savings targets, how those savings targets are being reached across categories or across brand categories. Uh, we help them not just buy the stuff, but then once they're engaged, we help them make sure that the sellers are hitting the KPIs, that the sellers are meeting whatever representations were made in the contract, that the contract is being renewed in time or it doesn't auto-renew without your knowing. So it's really turned into a much more holistic product but that is basically by you know, our asking people, what sucks about your job? <laughs> and when they tell us and we hear a, a story, and then that story becomes a thematic thing that we hear across organizations and across different people in different organizations, then we know we have, we have a, a solution waiting to happen. Got it. Uh, one thing that really stood out to me was around the last part that you talked about, where, where you really take customer development very seriously and essentially apply first principles mindset 
toward understanding what the customer is dealing with, how could you help them and continue to help them essentially, you know, do what they do best, right? Which is the key for any successful long-term relationship. I'm curious to understand when do you not listen to your customer and when do you try to make more what I'd call future-oriented bets where while the customers may be saying, this is what I need right now, you might have a different vision that you know is better. And, you know, if you put it in front of the customer, they might enjoy or prefer to have. How do you make those trade-offs? And, you know, what do you think those trade-offs are like in the context of Vendorful? Are there any trade-offs to begin with? So so to be clear, we have an active, engaged relationship with our customers, but we're not pushovers. So I had somebody the other day say, I want to send an RFP and I want to send it to like, 20 different providers and I want providers like one through six to respond to these three sections, uh, seven through 14 to respond to these three sections. And, and, and I said, well, yeah, that's actually three RFPs, right? If you, if you are not asking the same vendors the same questions, you're not doing an apples to apples comparison. So if you have these groupings, like that's the way, you know, you should, you should do it. Now over time I've learned about best practices. And there are certain things that people will ask for that we don't think make sense and that might result basically from a flaw in process. If somebody says like, oh, I don't like to eat any hard food, is it because they don't like to eat hard food for some reason or is it because they have a toothache and it exacerbates it? They've developed a set of habits or patterns based upon the fact that things aren't set up or working the way that they should. Right? So that is very, very important for us to tease out. But I would say that in terms of the future versus the present, the product is really pretty robust at this point. And so the kinds of stuff that we get asked, everybody comes to us, they say, I use way too much Excel, I need to delete Excel. Then they start using their product and like, how can I export that to Excel? So there are a bunch of buttons in the app that allow you to click and you know, generate Excel. And, and that's very, very tactical. When I talk about themes, that is when we start to think about building stuff for the future, when there is nothing in the market that scratches the itch that they have. They have a set of complaints, and there's something that we, we're going to be rolling out uh, incrementally over the next few months. We call it projects and workflows. What that came from is a, a set of discussions, many, many sets of discussions, where we were able to identify that with these long processes for, for procurement, particularly around sourcing, that you lose visibility into where you are in the process and that people who are in the process lose access to data along the way. So I am meant to do an approval based upon data acquired 15 steps before. I have to send you know, 35 emails to find out who has that information so I can go in and make a smart decision about whether to you know, yes or no and, and continue some down the process. What we're hearing, I have no transparency into my processes. I have no guarantee that there's compliance with my processes, right? So I'm taking on additional risk. And the people who are in the process, and I hate this, this term, but I, I don't have a better one for it. It sounds like corporate speak. Data silos and information silos in the process that gum up the works and slow things down and lead to subpar high-risk outcomes. So that stuff, we try to synthesize into a product. And that is absolutely much more long-term where no one's asked for something very specific. They've just expressed a common set of problems. And then 
we are basically saying, all right, <laughs> let's figure out a way to do this and no one's done it before. Got it. People talk a lot about big data and AI, obviously for the past five, if not 10 years. How do you think this is impacting the space of your e-procurement and strategic yep. sourcing? So the, uh, the dirty little secret in our business was the very first version of our product was a big data product. You know, the, we're gonna help you buy IT. We figured the best way to get the data, which we would then, you know, leverage to help these buyers would be to give away the product. But we discovered that there's the F word in procurement is not the F word everyone else thinks it is, it's free. And so <laughs> that created tons of impediments for us. And so when we shifted away from that model, what we, what we ended up learning is free was basically the, the first blocker, but you have to meet people where they are. And we are very, very excited uh, about the information we're gathering and the data that we're collecting and how that data can then uh, serve our customers who are providing it to us, right? But we are taking a much more incremental than revolutionary approach. And the reason is, frankly, we're, we got too far ahead of the market, and, and that's not a great place to be. So stuff we're doing in the, in the near term is helping people access, surface, and analyze the, the data that they have right now. In the future, there will be more stuff around you know, predictive analytics. We're, we're chomping at the bit to do it, but again, we, we have to have a product that makes sense commercially today and that will you know, continue to evolve over time. You know, the, the thing with software, particularly SaaS, is you're never done. You know, it's, it's, it's a forever thing. Yeah, for sure. I, I think that's something that we start to realize is that there's always constant changes, constant updates that need to happen. And quite honestly, it's the way you organize and the way you essentially manage that timeline from a capital deployment allocation perspective is the part that can probably have the biggest effect when you think about the long-term operations of the business. And I think that's, you know, the difference between kind of expanding the business versus properly maintaining the business and yep. understand what kind of aggressive or, you know, not so aggressive strategies you have. Yeah, this, and, and so this is, it leads to another interesting question that, you know, you deal with in startup world, and it's a very different set of questions when you're a large company, which is, you know, are you going to be a sales-driven company or a product-driven company? Thus far, we have elected to be a product-driven company. Uh, we have loads of large enterprises that we should have no business working with, um, but we are, again, meeting a need that they have in in a way that's you know, differentiated from what they have and, and other things that they can find in the market. Um, but that's all been sort of hustle, uh, you know, and am I putting on my sales hat? We are in the process right now uh, of, of hiring our first, you know, dedicated salesperson. We need to find a better balance in terms of capital deployment. But I guess my view on this and my partner's view on this is it is really, really hard to find product market fit the SaaS sales playbook, that's a matter of finding the right people and having them run, run the right plays. Um, we are not going to invent SaaS sales. Uh, it's a well understood problem. The problem that we're solving on the product side is not well understood. So from an allocation of resources perspective, 
overinvestment up front to reap the benefits over the long term. Totally. Switching gears a bit now to more about yourself. Um, I'm, I'm curious to learn more about your leadership style and specifically understand you know, what skills or mindsets do you have that are most difficult to transfer even within some of the most talented members of your team? This is something that we ask almost every guest. I'm curious to get your answer on this. I would say look, I have massive selection bias with the existing team because most of them worked for me previously. And so they've, they've come back you know, to, <laughs> for round two uh, dealing with me. But I will say of the people who didn't come from that group, right? So I you know, pick and choose who I work with and people who are, who are newer. The thing that I would like them to develop uh, more of and something that you know, the folks who are with me the second time and selected in large part for this reason is the ability to push back and be assertive and disagree. I think that creative and intellectual tension is incredibly important in any business, but especially a startup. And to think that I have all the answers is, is lunacy, right? And so I have a lot of ideas. Uh, I like to share those ideas with people freely. And I love it when people tell me why I'm wrong. Um, and not just why I'm wrong, but how they can do it better. I, I'm also very comfortable myself <laughs> disagreeing with people. I do, I do a lot of calls with entrepreneurs. And uh, I always caveat it the same way. You, know, you are free to disregard all of my opinions. You're going to get a lot of them from a lot of different people, and you can't make everyone happy. I'm not personally hurt by it. But if I can't be candid with you, I can't help. And similarly, if the people we hire can't be candid with me, they're really undermining their own value in the organization. I'm not hiring drones. I'm hiring smart, smart people who can solve really complex problems. Yeah, I think one thing that I've tried to stay true to is having strong opinions but weekly help. And I think that more than anything else has, has served me well in, in terms of just being able to express an opinion but at the same time being able to switch uh, my opinion to a completely different idea based on new data, new insights. And I think, you know, whoever I'm working with, that's probably a mindset that's served me well. And based on what I've read and learned from others, probably a mindset that is good to have especially while you're in this chaotic process of building a company. Yeah, I'm actually going to borrow that from you if you're okay with it. Strong opinions, <laughs> weekly health. And, and to be clear, you know, we're not talking about things where you should have strong conviction, like you know, your, your morals, your, your ethics. We're really talking about product decisions, pricing decisions, go-to-market questions, right? All these things which are much more fungible um, than you know, how you really, really feel about stuff. And to get married to, to any of these things really is, is a huge handicap. I, I, I question myself all the time, probably too much, uh, but, I want other, but that's not helpful. Right? It's, it's, I'm, a, I'm waging war in my own head. I need other people to come with fresh perspectives and, and you know, put those in front of me. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's a great place to wrap things up. I, I mean, David, uh, you know, phenomenal conversation, lots of insights and learning, not just in and around the supply chain, you know, procurement space, but more so around building companies. I think, you know, lots of great insights here and definitely enjoyed the conversation. So thank you for jumping on and you know, look forward to 
continue the dialogue and see where Vanderbilt goes. Hey, it was fun. I appreciate uh, you're, you're giving me a platform to you know spread disinformation. Awesome. <laughs> All, right. All right, bye-bye. You've been listening to the Vertical Software Podcast. Make sure to rate and subscribe our show to stay up to date on future episodes of the Vertical Software Podcast. Thanks again and talk to you next week.